Hi, I'm Alex Bellinger and this is Small Biz Pod on Friday the 16th of January. Well, uh, in today's podcast, I interview one of the former dragons from Dragon's Den, Doug Richard. Uh, And this was an interview I did just before Christmas, literally a few hours before the business that he's most well known for in the UK library house uh, more or less went into administration. But a fascinating interview, quite um, telling and interesting with that knowledge at the back of your minds listening now to it. Um, I'd have put it out earlier, but as many of you know, I com- literally completely lost my voice with a, a, a throat problem before Christmas. So um, here it is, and it's well worth waiting for. A lot of great advice from Doug, a lot of frankness and openness about uh, his own uh, business success and failure uh, and the challenges that are facing small businesses and startups now in 2009. A great interview. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Other than that, I've got a brilliant piece of kind of uh, electronica blues music at the end, which you should all check out. Blues for uh, Doug Richard um, and anyone else who's having a tough time in 2009. But it's also called the 445 Blues. So blues for all of those who want to get out of the office and start their own businesses this year. Other than that, I've also got, um, thanks to listeners out there, another great book review. So a book review of Richard Branson's latest book, coming up after the interview with Doug Richard. So that is just about it. Other than to say, uh, do check out, if you haven't done already, the New Look Small Biz Pod. New Look for the new year. I think it is very, very much better. I really love it. And also check out our new uh, Sevens section, an opportunity for you to share your seven business tips with fellow startups, small business owners and entrepreneurs. Uh, you can basically just log in and contribute. And it's a brilliant way to raise your profile and do your bit to support uh, small businesses. So uh, lots of people are already providing um, their uh, views and advice and tips there. Uh, there are seven pithy pearls of wisdom. So do join them. Uh, it would be great to see you there. So all that aside, let's go straight into my interview with Doug Richard. So uh, it's a great pleasure to be here in uh, Paul Allen's Hospital Club in London with another American, very well known, uh, thanks to Dragon's Den, uh, Doug Richard, uh, who is, amongst many things, a serial entrepreneur, chairman and founder of Library House, CEO of TrueTap, and a business angel. Uh, <laughs> Doug, I think I got that right. Uh, welcome to Small Biz Pod. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to have a chance to talk about small business. Now, um, first of all, what makes you tick? Just to get, I mean, people see you on TV. What makes you tick? Um, what makes me tick? I'm completely of the opinion that I have spent the last 25 years starting businesses and, to use, I'm afraid, an American baseball metaphor, a base hitter. I start them, I grow them, I sell them, but my name's never been attached to a YouTube, my name hasn't been attached to a Google, so I've yet to view myself as a success. One of these days I think I'll hit a home run, and I'm still working on that. That's uh, still good to see you still have ambition. <laughs> is, that a, is that an essence of, of the entrepreneurial outlook, the never being satisfied, always wanting to create the next big thing? I don't know. Wait till I create one that's really big, and I'll let you know whether I'm still motivated. <laughs> um, 
I know that I, I get impatient, and thus I enjoy the conceptualization of business, the starting of business, the points where it's very unformed. Once a business meets with any success, I tend to get bored. Um, the mere scaling of a business, even though I shouldn't say mere, it's, it's in and of itself requires great skill and expertise, is not something that I'm particularly drawn to and thus not particularly good at. I like to start them and I like to sell them. So I tend to step out once it's going well and I put in a team. Uh, and then I just nag them until we sell it. <laughs> so I've, I've heard you, I've heard you or seen you say before that you uh, you started in entrepreneurship really because nobody else would employ you. Is that is that the secret? If you're unemployable, you've got to keep flipping those flipping those startups. <laughs> well, I think if you're unemployable, you've got at least a primary motivation that you need a job and a salary. And if nobody else will give you a job, kind of you've got to give it to yourself. Um, I think it's well known that entrepreneurs come out. Uh, of different motivational positions. Many people who start businesses do so because they truly have what they think is a better idea. Yeah. You know, and that's why so many of them come out of it a specific industry and then revolutionize the very industry they're in because they've been in it, they look around, they can see that it's not working and they have the idea in that context. And most successful entrepreneurs have started in an industry and stayed in that industry. It's much less common to be somebody like me who, you know, my background was in education, was in, I studied philosophy, not particularly marketable, I might add. Um, and so I stumbled into the computer industry and then stumbled into software. And admittedly, it's been my life work since then. But I don't know that I'm the normal way people start as an entrepreneur. But I, you're completely correct. I am utterly unemployable by other people. <laughs> which, is a, which is a good thing, I think, in this context. Um, Obviously, one of the things that you've launched recently is School for Startups, which uh, currently focused in Scotland, I think, primarily. Um, tell me a little bit about that. So School for Startups, in fairness, started with an idle bet I made. I should never make comments. It's, it's amazing where it leads. But it, it also draws upon very heavily upon the fact I spent a year and a half looking at the quality and quantity of support for small businesses and entrepreneurs in the UK when I chaired the Conservative Party Task Force on Small Business, and it, it, this, the conclusion of which was a report I wrote uh, called the Richard Report. And one of the things that struck me very forcefully is that for the myriad of programs in this country and support schemes and headlines and programs and organizations, there's still a huge gap, there's a huge hole in actually what entrepreneurs need. And it was my observation, my belief, that it really centers around a critical educational question. There's a lot of people who want to start a small business. They're sitting there right now. In fact, they're maybe listening to this, sitting in a cubicle, in an office, staring out a window, thinking to themselves, I'd like to start a business. I have an idea. And that it's at that moment that they stop. It's, and it's not so much fear as an, a perfectly rational awareness that they have no real clue what they're supposed to do, in what order, and how to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's a few things, myths that I think are important to dispel. One. You can teach someone to be an entrepreneur. You don't have to be born an entrepreneur. You don't have to be raised in such a way. You don't have to, as you know, as some of my co-dragons have celebrated the fact they don't have an education and look at how far they've come. Okay, that's just a hurdle. Yeah. That's not an accomplishment. The absence of an education did not advantage them. It's yet something else they overcame. So the fact is you can teach people to be entrepreneurs and you can teach them very practically how to do it and it doesn't take years. And so drawing on a very common format in California, the boot camp, so mm. the short course, very intensive one-day seminar format, I happened to have made a passing comment to one of the RDAs that 
they weren't doing it right. And in fact, what they needed to do was this, and I could teach anyone to start a business in a day. And it was those words, unfortunately, <laughs> that got me into so much trouble, right. which then compelled them to say, well, if you can do such a thing, why don't you show us? And so I spent about six months writing up a curricula, and then I put on a first pilot of the School for Startups in the Northeast, and it was a raging success. And, you know, I had 225 people, nine hours on stage, a bit tiring. But the net result was it was perfectly clear it worked. And so I decided to do it seriously. I mean, I wanted to do a social enterprise. I wanted something I could go out and see if I could have an impact directly. And thus, School for Startups has become my mechanism to do so. And so since then, which was last February, we've now taught the course in the east of England. I've taught it in Edinburgh. Next week we're teaching it in Glasgow. The original one-day format, which essentially teaches people who have nothing but an idea what the first steps are and how to conceptualize their business, how to plan their business, how to understand it, how to know even if it's a good idea at all. Mm. All of that one day leaves them in a position to get started. Since then, we've added on a second day, which we call, in my head I call it money, but in point we call it entrepreneurial, <laughs> well, what money? <laughs> entrepreneurial economics, yeah. and it touches on all aspects of money. Yeah. Are you going to make money? Does this thing make sense? How do you finance it? How do you grow it? Where does money come in? What kind of places should you look? How do you understand how to build the money model, as it were? of your business and how to and it's this once again this is completely teachable mm. so we're rolling that out next week actually in Glasgow and in the new year in 2009 there will be two more seminars turned on one of which is how to bring a product or service to market and the fourth one will be titled people I love short names <laughs> and that covers two things how to grow a team how to hire and grow a team and how to manage and hire and pull together a board and between the four courses, those four days is essentially an intensive short course in everything you need to start a business that's likely to succeed and then grow a successful business. And uh, how many successful businesses have you created that way? Do you know? Or is it too early to say? I mean, cool for startups. Yeah. No idea. Um, I know that I've, since we started, I've already taught 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. I would like to teach 10,000. Uh, we're tracking, to some degree, the people, the best as we can, people who've attended the course. Uh, we've certainly had an impact on new people starting a business, because right from that first course in Newcastle, people walked out the door, and dozens of them have started businesses as a direct result. Whether they will take all of my advice to heart, and whether or not their ideas are good or not, hard to say. But I do know that we've had an immediate impact, and the tracking we're doing now suggests it's actually quite a considerable impact. Okay, and it's a social enterprise, which is quite interesting, um, in that presumably you're being funded by Europe or government to, 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 to put those courses on. How does it work in terms of, the, in terms of your remuneration? Well, I'm a, I have no problem with government supporting these activities. I have a problem with government having to always support Mm -hmm. these activities. And so in setting up School for Startups, I was also trying to show a set of a model, an exemplar of ways in which you can start with working with government and then move beyond. Because as you and I both know, if there's a demand for something, there's usually on the other side some way to create revenue against that demand. Yeah. And thus my observation in this particular market is it's not the entrepreneur I want to charge, it's people who want to get to know the entrepreneur. And so the model that we're building and we're shifting to is one is where large corporations of all sorts of types, whether mm. they're technology corporations that want people to use their software, or their web hosting companies that want to use their web hosting, or their banks who want their services. These are incipient small businesses, and they're a hard-to-reach market. Yeah. And thus, they're looking to sponsor these, thus still letting us deliver school for startups at no charge to the entrepreneur. And our goal is to get all the costs underwritten, and then use surpluses to grow the educational offering. Yeah. 
Now, um, I guess your your celebrity, um, your your fame as an entrepreneur within the UK uh, must help in that. I mean, all marketing is is tremendously important in business, and and celebrity in its own right is is marketing in some to some extent. Are there, have there been any downsides for you as an entrepreneur? as a result of the fame that's been generated from Dragon's Den? Well, first of all, you, there's, there's no doubt that you're correct. Celebrity is a form of marketing, and it helps, full stop. Yeah. And we're all being silly and naive if we don't appreciate that. The challenge for me is that I was safely anonymous for mm. 46 years, and then one day I wake up and everybody knows who I am. Yeah. And in the UK in particular, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, if people know who you are, there's 50% are cheering you on and 50% are hoping you'll fail. It's a very peculiar dynamic mm-hmm. and therefore any of my activities are now on a public stage and are amplified as a result. And because it is my life's work to engage in ultra high risk activity, I start not just small businesses, but I start high risk businesses, businesses that are usually new technologies, new innovations, and some succeed and some fail. Now, I'm perfectly happy with that. If I'm not taking if some of them don't fail, it means I really am not taking very great risk. And, as is usually the case, in any given year, I have some ventures fail and some succeed. And fortunately for me, over my life, my successes have well outweighed my failures. It's what makes me a successful entrepreneur. It's why people come back and continue to invest in me. But you take that and you throw the lens of the UK media on that, and what do they write about? They celebrate the failures and they forget the successes. So you know, there is a downside in it. Mm. Do I give a crap? No. Ultimately, I don't really care. Right now, I know that you're, you're, you're uh, chief executive of TrueTap, and TrueTap has, I think, cut back staff and is, you know, like a lot of businesses right now, making sure that their costs are kind of as low as possible. Um, and inevitably, some, some people will say, oh, well, there's that Doug Richard and TrueTap is going down the pan or whatever. But... The fact of the matter is, is that I suspect um, that there are some there are some interesting lessons that you personally are drawing from your experience with TrueTap and other and other businesses that have uh, that have had to scale back. You know, have you have you learned anything in particular, or is this is this expected in the kind of line of work you're in, which, as you've already said, is about is about risk, is taking risk in business. Well, TrueTap in particular, I'm not, I certainly am not writing that business off yet. We, no, no. we have absolutely scaled it back, and it is absolutely in light of the fact that with the economic downturn, we're not going to get more funding into it, therefore we have to make ends yeah, meet. Yeah, yeah. And thus, instead of going all guns forward, we cut back at the first moment we could without damaging the business. Um, and of course, you're right, the industry blogs immediately pick up on that. Um, at the same time, I think you'll see some more news coming in TrueTap rather shortly, which will perhaps make more clear my strategy. Um, having said that, it's not so much that I've learned a particular set of new lessons, whether it's in the case of TrueTap per se. It's just that I'm continuing, I mean, this is my sixth or seventh business, but I'm very mindful of the fact that the kinds of businesses that we all have to be engaged in, the kind that we're going to start or be involved in over the next year or two, there really has to be a mental shift for a lot of people in terms of, there's a type of business that I particularly have been successful with, which I used to call R&D startups, Mm -hmm. which is where you're essentially building a business, not so much that it's going to be a highly profitable business in its own right, but when it's purchased by someone else, it becomes a very profitable part of yeah. the larger business. And yeah. in tech companies, you can do this. So you can look at a, you know, a gap in the market and say, look, as a standalone business, we'll be at, we won't last for 10 years. Mm. We'll hardly last for five. But none of the large companies would ever take the money to take this risk. And if we pull it off, they're all going to want it as part of
their product line. Yeah, yeah. Now that uh, that's why I call them R and D startups because you're kind of yeah. outsourcing the yeah, R and D yeah, functional yeah. large Makes companies. Yeah. Now I've made most of my money in life in that space mm. in being the the product that they bought rather than built. Mm. And if you look across my companies, it's usually because I've observed a gap that's too narrow for a business, but makes a hell of a product or service. Mm. And possibly some very recent businesses are like that as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, but those are harder to start in a downturn. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You, they, you really have to be in the momentum part of the cycle, what we've been through in the last five yeah. years. They're great to start then. In a downturn, the other kind of business you start is one where you immediately ask yourself not how much revenue can I create, but how much profit can I create. Yeah, you really yeah, start yeah, yeah. with a growth of profit. And so therefore you want something that is not, does not have huge capital challenges up front, that can be monetized quickly, where you can get early customers, where the customers can grow with you, where you can scale it basically as fast as you can grow the revenue line, therefore you're always lined up. You know, those businesses tend not to be worth as much, interestingly yeah, yeah. enough, in yeah. the in the near term, in the first five years. They tend to get their legs underneath them in a much longer pace. And if you look at the businesses that I'm in the process of getting involved in, they tend to have those characteristics. And with the businesses I've been involved in, and that some of which are doing quite well, uh, they tend not to be like. They tend to be the kind boom boom time businesses. Yeah, yeah. So is there, is there, you know, you're after a cash generating business uh, in a downturn. Does that basically put a pause on Web 2.0? Oh, no, no, no. Web 2.0 is, is, well, Web 2.0 essentially is a shorthand for an accumulation of technologies. But, you know, metaphorically, no, not at all. There's Web 2.0 businesses that, that, are, that are good cash generators and that have the kind of business model that lets you start early. And there's those that don't. Mm. I think that the, the Web 2.0 spans all forms of business. Yeah. Um, but I mean, to give you an example, uh, I became, an, I'm very heavily involved in a company called Alert Me. Mm-hmm. And I've been aboard since the beginning. Now, Alert Me is doing very, it's, it's the kind I first described. It's a boom time business, considerable capital investment up front, very innovative products, but we had to spend a lot of money to make a lot of money. And it's really growing all of a sudden now very quickly. Mm. Okay, didn't have to be the case, but we were very fortunate and the guys were very inventive. And so it's going to go into the downturn entering revenues. So its timing is just brilliant. You know, so it's coming into the money just as the money's disappearing. (laughs) Okay, it's not like I designed it, right? You know, it's not like I woke up and said, okay, in 18 and 2.7 months, the downturn starts when you have revenue in 18.6 months. So, you know, people forget. You can tell what part of the cycle you're in. You Mm. can never tell whether you're at the beginning or the end of it. Mm. You can tell... You know that you've got a good business, but you don't know whether fortune's going to shine on you or not. Mm. And all successful entrepreneurs have had an element of luck on their side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anybody who tells you it was all hard, sweat, and tears is both <laughs> egotistical and hasn't done enough times to know the truth. Okay, countercyclical businesses that are a hot tip. Where should where should if you've got money in your pocket, if you're an angel, an angel like you, Doug, where are you investing your countercyclical dollar? Well, in fairness. Most of the money I invest, I don't invest in startups. It's a high-risk activity. <laughs> you know, I, I spend a lot of my money goes into dividend-bearing public shares. Yeah. Emphasis on <laughs> dividend-bearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know. Uh, but in terms, of this, in terms of this part of the cycle, I, I'm investigating, looking at, and beginning to participate in companies that can get, deliver some value to a customer almost from day one. 
really the, the, the sort of the clear indicia that I'm looking for is they can wake up and say, look, we can get started, we can do it this way, okay, it's not the long-term goal, but we've got a customer, we can give them some money, they can give us some money, and then we can grow along those lines. You know, and so there's people doing some fantastic work in media planning and in advertising, especially in new technologies, where the tech component will come, but not today. The tech component is going to come over time, but we're going to start, hell, we'll start with using people. Mm, to, to, mm, to, to sort of do a lot of what technology might we might have automated before, but there's new spaces that require new things, mm, and certainly the intersection of media and the web and media and mobile remain my obvious yeah. areas of fascination. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything that provides value to people is interesting right now. Yeah. So things that permit people to shop more accurately, shop more effectively, buy things, buy fundamentals at a better price, uh, travel less, spend less, have a lower carbon footprint, anything that they can relate back yeah. on a consumer level yeah. is very good business right now. Yeah. Anything that drives a new product that changes their lives in a way that's meaningful in this context yeah. is great. Yeah. You know, and you have to just watch the socioeconomic trends. We're all, you know, anything that lets you watch better, more TV, well, we're going to be watching a lot more TV because we can't afford to go out anymore. It's, it's that kind of thinking, though, that's got you got to get your head around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does it mean? Are people moving towards this activity or are they moving away from it? If you can't identify that, then chances are you're miss, probably missing a beat. Which is fine if you're uh, looking at new startups uh, or you're looking at new opportunities. If you're, if you're an existing business and you are in this downturn, what is the one thing that a small business needs to do right now? Okay, well, let's get the big thing out of the way since it dwarfs everything else. Manage cash, and then manage more cash, and then manage cash. Yeah. At the end of the day, the proximate cause of death of any business is an absence of cash. Yeah. You know, and so people and people forget. Therefore, you really, I could say this to any small business, and they won't do it well enough. So I, I'm safe saying it again. Mm. You are spending too much money. Mm. I don't give a shit what you think. Yeah. You're wrong. Yeah. You're spending too much money. Yeah. Spend less. Yeah. Find a way to spend less and get better at it. Yeah. You know, however much you've cut your cost, you're not good enough at it. And, you know, I'm, I am just as guilty as everyone else. Mm. And the only time I know how guilty I am is when I'm forced to cut. And then I think to myself, why didn't I do this six months ago? Mm. How mm. foolish am I? Mm. There's mm. so many luxuries, even though we don't know it. It's not always headcount either. And so we should remember that as well. It's also getting your employees to participate in that. Yeah. I've, had, I've had more than one occasion where everyone's been in a room. We've said, look, we have this much money in totality. Now, we can keep all the jobs and stop doing everything else, or we can all chip in part of our salaries and turn into bonuses, or we can all take some options. But you'd be amazed. And how do I put it? The best way to put it is we underestimate the capacity of people to rise to an occasion. We frequently set metrics and targets and say to them, this is what we want you to do, and thus we limit the opportunity to rise up. Mm. When in point of fact, people are almost always better than we give them credit for. We rarely let them have the freedom to prove it to us. Uh, in downturns, getting them in the group, on side with you, saying, okay, how do we survive and how do we prosper? You know, there is no better time to actually start paying attention to all the people who had all the ideas you should have been paying attention to the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a bit like, you, you get the feeling that it's a bit like most people in their personal lives have been, they, they, the money and credit's been so flowing so freely that, that people have really not paid much attention to the, the, the small things that all add up. Certainly there's no lack of parallels between our personal behavior and our business behavior. People are people whether they're in or out of the office. Yeah. Um, I think what people forget is that businesses are rarely more than a reflection of the people who participate in them. And thus the good times become bad times and people act in a knee-jerk fashion. That's not appropriate. The smartest thing to do in business is 
absolutely to get your head around the idea. As soon as you have a thought, as soon as you have a concern, you're already on the verge of being too late to act upon it. Yeah. And as soon as you start waiting, you're now too late. Okay, um, two final questions. One about funding, just funding in general. I've heard it say that with, with bank funding, uh, whether it be overdraft or whether it just be straight debt or borrowing, becoming increasingly difficult to, to get, that um, angels have been seeing higher quality businesses coming to them looking for equity um, deals. Is, is that your experience? And is that, the, is, is that for uh, profitable, sound businesses that that are make, already making money an option? Well, there's two parts to your question. One is the premise that it's because of the lack of credit from banks that angels are seeing better deals. I would dispute that to some degree because I think the kind of money one gets from a bank is not the kind of money you get from an angel. So it's a bit of a cross-asset mm. comparison. I think that, but the latter point is true. Angel investors are seeing much higher quality opportunities and in large part, it's because we're the, one of the few groups that has not stopped investing. Um, certainly, banks have absolutely cut back. I mean, to a degree that's quite draconian. Mm. But so too is most institutional venture investors, mm. um, for all perfectly rational economic reasons. I'm, this is not good. These, the thing we have to remember is the availability of money or its absence is not. There's no. There's no good or evil quality to it. <laughs> it. It flows from a series of circumstances that put people in a situation where they're constrained. Mm. And as a rule, people make logical, rational decisions. That's if venture investors are not investing right now, give me an hour and I can walk you through why. Mm. Um, and were I they, I would not. But angels are different to some degree. Mm. The fact is, some of the same constraints apply. If you're an angel investor, it, it implies you've got some disposable cash to put into high-risk activity, which implies that the total amount of capital you have is invested in non-risky activity. The problem is what we used to all think was non-risky is all losing money hand over fist. Because if you had your money in shares, they've gone down. If you had money in property, it's gone down. If you had money in hedge funds, it's gone down. You notice there's a certain repetitious theme here. So everybody's less wealthy right now. Yeah. And therefore, even in, so therefore, angels are constrained and it's the same angels who have all their current investments calling them up going yeah, with yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that it's not per se true that all angels are still investing, but there's certainly more because we have more discretion to act to move the quantity we move, invest into high risk, whereas others simply won't do it. Yeah. Thus, thus, we are getting better deals. Nobody else, very few else, others are investing at all, mm. and thus people gravitate to the money. Mm. Mm. No, absolutely. Are there any other creative ways of making money other than just having customers, of course? <laughs> I'll tell you one way to get credit that people seem to be underthinking about. Mm. Uh, it's called supplier credit, for lack of a better mm. term. Um, there are large corporations, even now I know, that are having conversations with the small businesses that they sell to, mm -hmm. saying, look, it, if you're having trouble with your bank, if you're having trouble getting commercial credit, talk to us. Mm -hmm. Because what they're seeing is it's in their own self-interest yeah. to make sure that the people they sell to are still in business. And if it's an otherwise viable business. So there are suppliers extending credit yeah. as a commercial yeah. activity. So, you know, you want creativity if you're a small business? Look at every direction. All stakeholders, vendors, partners, customers, shareholders, banks, advisors. You'd be amazed. The thing to get creative about is the fact that there's cash and there's receivables or or, or there's debt and credit. Yeah. <laughs> They're so not the same. And you can re 
you have, you have to look at every single person who owes you and whom you owe, you know, the web of relation, financial relationships you're in, and ask, could it be just done a different way? Could it be longer, slower, different, more ratcheted? Could we trade this, swap that, parlay this? You just have to start asking it everywhere. Yeah. And the thing you have to remember is the guy on the other side of the table, he, he's waiting for the call. And if he isn't, he's open to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Finally. Finally. That's a big topic to end with. <laughs> we'll see how we go. Obviously, we, you touched upon the, the Richard Report. Um, government support for businesses has been much criticised um, for decades, probably. Uh, a combination of red tape, a combination of you know employment legislation, a combination of just how the support is delivered. Um, and there's massive amounts of money spent. What's the solution? Well, you're not going to get that in a sentence. Are you? <laughs> no, no, that's, such, that's a very unfair question. But anyway, I'll. Twenty seconds. Go on. <laughs> um, well, my the my if if I had to reduce my entire report down to a, a simple critique, mm. I would have said ineffectiveness. That a very large sum of money is spent every year, billions of pounds, mm. and very very little of it is effective. Much of it is work for the boys. Much of it is lost in the distribution systems, the bureaucracy, the just it's a the inefficiency, the duplication. I mean, it's waste, waste, more waste, more waste. And you know, at some point, the sheer scale of the waste becomes really quite startling. And that was the thing that most startled me was the sheer arrogance of such waste. You know, what it really was, if one strips away the politics, or actually if you want to let the politics reveal themselves, mm. was it was a, a system designed to create headlines. It was a system designed to say, look, we have yet another new program, yet a new program. That's how you ended up with 3,000 programs delivered by 2,000 organizations. The sheer numbers alone make you know inevitably that most of it is just bullshit. And thus, when you ask, what is the solution? The solution starts by recognition of what the problem was. The problem was is there was n very little desire to be effective. There was a great deal of desire to be seen to be doing something. That's different than doing something. Mm, mm. And in that lies the solution. There are, across these many programs, some successful ones. It is literally no more difficult than taking the few that are successful and scaling them in a very methodical way and turning off. And I mean turning off all those that were unsuccessful or couldn't prove that they had an impact and then leaving the huge buckets of money that are left to focus on the ones that work and then to be much more methodical and evidence-driven in our approach. And at some point, a little common sense wouldn't hurt either. Mm. Leveraging the web and acknowledging the fact that much of this is about making people ready for business. It's an educational question yeah, yeah. in the broadest sense. Yeah. is truly what it should be about. Government shouldn't provide advice. It doesn't have the experience to do so. Government isn't in business. Mm. Have you ever met somebody in government that ran, could run a small business? Well, I've yet to meet them. I'm looking forward to it. So why in heaven's name would I take advice from them? <laughs> <laughs> That's the one problem with your report, though, is it was probably released a little bit too early because it seems that an awful lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the recommendations are already being implemented. But there we are. One, one final, two short, sharp things. Okay. What's your one wish for 2009, personally in business, and your one piece of advice for startups in 2009? Oh, my wish in 2009? Oh, I'm, I'm a realist. 2009 is not going to be the year 
that I look forward to. It's, you know, it's going to be difficult circumstances. Uh, my only wish is that we, I, well, I currently am optimistic that we now have competent government in the U.S. My wish in 2009 is that the U.K. were similarly blessed. Um, and um, my advice for small businesses I know, it's a pretty funny comment. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to work out where you stand. Well, I can't even vote in this country, <laughs> no, but let's no. just say that it would be nice to see, as I say, I'm hopeful yeah, for the U.S., yeah, yeah. and I yeah. only have wishful thoughts for the U.K. Yeah. Um, and insofar as advice for small business in 2009, I think that you, you are very foolish to think that the past will tell you the future. It is going to be more difficult for longer than whatever it is you currently are thinking, and therefore it is a rule most people have underprepared for the downturn. Okay, Doug Richard, thanks very much. Thank you very much for interviewing me. Sorry I was on such a sober note. <laughs> so there we are. Um, certainly some very good practical advice there from somebody who really does know, who's, who's suffered the, the slings and arrows of uh, entrepreneurial fortune, both the highs and the lows. Um, and so, yeah, good advice for 2009. Interesting insight, I think, into where, if you're an investor if, or, or if you are seeking funding, where the money is likely to go, away from high risk towards cash generative. Uh, very interesting interview. Uh, a lot in there. Well worth repeated listen. I, I always listen to these things, obviously, when I'm editing them afterwards. And uh, yeah, good one. Anyway, so thanks to Doug for that. He was very generous with his time, particularly uh, uh, as he was uh, only hours away in some respects from uh, losing one of, the, one of his main businesses. So that was um, uh, bad, but also um, generous of him. So I wish him well for 2009 and I wish all of you guys out there well too. It's obviously going to be hard, but I think one of the secrets and one of the reasons we set up Small Biz Pod 7s is that uh, I think one of the secrets is going to be working together as, as entrepreneurs, as small businesses, as startups, supporting each other, helping each other where we can. Uh, that kind of spirit is going to be important. Um, so there we are. Now, uh, on a slightly different note, let's head towards uh, a listener uh, review of Richard Branson's latest book, uh, which is called uh, Business Strip Bear. Uh, and the review is by Steve Windus of smallbusinessfoodoo.com. So, Steve, uh, take it away, as they say. Hello, I'm Steve Windus from smallbusinessvoodoo.com. I was delighted to be invited by Alex at Small Biz Pod to review Richard Branson's latest book, Business Strip Bear, The Adventures of a Global Entrepreneur. Like many others, I've always been a fan of Richard Branson and Virgin without knowing that much about either. How did Virgin Mobile become the fastest business in United States history to reach a $1 billion turnover? Yes, faster even than Microsoft or Google. How did a man who set out to sell records in the 70s become one of the world's most influential social entrepreneurs, with friends to count on such as Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton and the Dalai Lama, to name just a few. Before you even make it to the opening credits, you get a flavour of what being a truly global entrepreneur looks like. On the inside cover, in rough handwriting, presumably Branson's, are notes detailing some of the things he managed to achieve last year. Ordered six new 747-400s, 
opened a game reserve in Africa, bought five miles of Majorcan coastline for new hotel, secured site for largest cinema in the world in Tokyo, opened first megastore in Beirut. Branson is without question a truly global entrepreneur. The book itself has broken down into the fundamental ingredients that Branson sees as critical to all businesses. People, the brand, delivery, innovation, leadership and social responsibility. On one level, Branson's wisdom is relatively straightforward and unoriginal. However, it's because that wisdom comes from one so successful that the lessons are so powerful and drive so deep. Branson refers to setting his people free, engendering an entrepreneurial atmosphere through the whole organisation. He tells us that fighting the outside world is easy, trying to make peace among one's own staff, hell. When discussing brands, we learn how Virgin manages its brand across 300 separate businesses, and how it's the only company to have created from scratch $8 billion turnover companies in eight different sectors. Truly astonishing. And of course the key to protecting the brand is delivery. Delivery is about communication and attention to detail, plain and simple, with a bit of luck thrown in. When reading his thoughts on innovation, we're left gasping. A company that started out simply selling vinyl records, Virgin is now at the heart of the major global issues of our day. Space travel for consumers, increasing the lot of Africa's poor, global warming, stem cell technology, renewable fuels. In fact, social responsibility in all its guises. Branson tells us that innovation is the key driver of any business. For small companies, the distinction between innovation and day-to-day -day delivery is barely noticeable. It's all just business, creative, flexible and responsive. However, as businesses grow, complexity tends to gum up the works and it's the achievement of innovation in a fast-growing empire that is particularly captivating. The book at this point was in danger of becoming a 320-page pat on the back for Virgin, but then Branson admirably changes tack and dedicates a whole section to Virgin's mistakes and setbacks. So we gain some insight into where Virgin Cola ran out of fizz and why their Northern Rock bid in 2008 literally hit the rocks. The book wraps up by talking about social responsibility. Branson suggests that all businesses would do well to put this high on the agenda. In fact, as your business grows, it will have no option as large businesses without a social conscience will not survive. We're left wondering how one man grasps the essence of so many complex and disparate businesses. I believe it boils down to his ability to see complicated issues in a very simple light, and because he truly wants to make the world a better place. As Branson spends an increasing amount of his time considering his legacy, the question is, will Virgin be able to maintain the philanthropic edge and customer service passion so admirably driven by him for many years? Or will it take on a harder edge and perhaps over time lose the very essence of what made Virgin great in the first place? We'll have to wait and see. So who should read this book? Well, there's pretty much something in it for anyone with an interest in business. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the building blocks are laid out for you by someone who really knows. Perhaps you just feel like immersing yourself in a good news story. If that's the case, then you're in for a treat. 
Perhaps like me, you've been intrigued for some time about the Virgin story and wanted to learn a little more. But in my view, this book is talking most directly to entrepreneurs and those currently running businesses of any scale. It's an opportunity to take stock, to calibrate their performance against one of the very best, and to readdress their own business values in order to move forward stronger and with a renewed focus. I hope you find time to read this book, as it will be time well spent. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Alex once again. Well, thank you, Steve. That was that was really cool. Uh, another book that I wish I'd read before I sent it out to a listener to review. Uh, so, yeah, Steve Windus there. Thank you ever so much. And if you would like to review a book, there's a lot out there at the moment and a lot of reviews coming in. But if you would like to review a book, uh, just drop me an email at alex at smallbizpod.co.uk. I'll send you the book. 30 days later, you have to send me four or five minute audio review. Couldn't be simpler, could it? So there we are. Uh, do as well head over to smallbizpod7 smallbizpod.co.uk forward slash sevens and check out the new section of the site and the new look really appreciate your feedback and also any contributions tips advice that you'd like to contribute you can set yourself up with a profile and a link a little blurb a little biog put your tips in nice and easy sort of self-service fashion uh yeah uh, and comment and vote on other people's too. It's uh, it's a good good interactive space. So it's an, an, a welcome addition, I think, to uh, Small Biz Pod site. Which brings me on to my usually well crafted uh, introduction to this week's or this episode's music. Now, I do actually know what this one is called. It's called the Four Forty Five Blues. And few people know that I've got a big blues collection as well as being a complete electronica nut. This combines kind of blues music with loops and electronica. It's by an artist called Goldfish on the Black Mango music label. And with big thanks, as always, to Iota Promenet for letting us play it. (laughs) 